0: All right, welcome to the SBE podcast. I'm Trent Jacobs, and today I'm talking to Matthias Carlson. He's a petroleum engineer, consultant, and general manager with Whitson, which is a software and consulting company that specializes in some pretty cool oil and gas research. In the last couple of years, he's authored and co-authored what five SBE papers. Did I have that right? And uh, I've seen him present a couple of these recently, so I wanted to have him come in and talk about it. Uh, first, we're going to get into everybody's favorite topic, Shell EOR. Um, I also hope to get him to speak about a uh, a very kind of wonky issue, but we're gonna see if we can have fun with it. It's called Separator Oil Shrinkage, and what that means. All right, Matias, so we met, uh, gosh, uh, it's two or three months ago. We met in November uh, in Florida with our friend Saga Wisdom. So I just wanted to give a big shout out to our friend John Thompson and his whole crew. Uh, then I saw you again last week in Saudi Arabia, and the funny part is that uh, we probably work just a few miles apart here in Houston. And this happens to me all the time. You know, I have to fly around the world or go to another state to meet somebody that works. You know, ten ten blocks away from me. We brought you in because uh, you, you've had some pretty interesting takes on shale EOR, and uh, you have a really good high-level uh, perspective on this. And also, you, you get right into the weeds uh, whenever I see you speak on this. So. This has been a hot topic since 2016, I believe, since EOG first broke the news that it was doing huff and puff gas injections. Ever since, everybody's been captivated by this topic. What is what is your take on this? It's 2020. Where are we now with shale? You are.
1: You know, uh, since since 2016, I think that was kind of uh, the the first uh, pivoting moment when when uh, EOG presented this uh, this this uh, semester slides on the topic. But but since then, you've seen a lot of things happening, but it's been happening a little bit slow, I think, for, for at least for a lot of the audience. Um, but things is definitely happening. And you know, in the Eagle Ford, you have EOG, you have EP, Marathon, Phillips, uh, Murphy, and so forth doing piloting and, and projects throughout the, the Eagle Ford. But you also have uh, things going on in the Permian with Oxy, uh, Chevron, these other basins with, with uh, you know, um, uh, Continental in the scoop stack, Liberty in the Bakken and so forth. So so I, th- I think things is happening uh, for people working on the topic, pro- probably also in the industry, uh, people like yourself uh, as well, I uh, think it it might be moving a little bit slower than what we initially hoped. Uh, you know, I've been working on this uh, probably uh, since 2016 in, in all these different places and um, I'm kind of, uh, you know, not disappointed, but a little bit, uh, you know, pull, uh, set up from the fact that, uh, you know, it's been taking four years from 2016, and, and we haven't seen more than maybe 200 wells tested so far. And, and uh, I hope, hopefully in the next five years, we'll we'll see, you know, a quadrupling maybe of of, um, of that.
0: I, I think what's interesting is, and you, you, you speak to the impatience, and, and as we were talking before we came on, it, you know, sort of as a, as a reporter, as a journalist covering the industry, it, it has been an exciting, but also sort of frustrating topic. And I was saying that, you know, generally, w- I've only found myself doing like one big, uh, you know, kind of in-depth feature on this topic a year, um, at most, because it, the information um, doesn't come out so much, and, and there isn't a lot of progress. And, I, and I'm wondering, in part, is that because we're so spoiled on the fast-moving, you know, ship that is the U.S. shale revolution, even though it's kind of hitting rocky waters, to, to keep the analogy going. But uh, we're spoiled with, with a, a really fast moving uh, sector. And then yet EOR is stuck in R&D phase for
1: four years going on five. That's spot on essentially. Uh, that, that's the same, uh, that's how I, I view the situation as well. Uh, you know, I, 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 I. But I, I, again, I think it's important to 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 acknowledge that things is really happening. Um, you know, not al- it's not only on the research level. It's not only huff and puff. Uh, you know, there's also all these other things that's happening with uh, with uh, jewelry being put down hall, uh, with interesting completion schemes. Uh, you know, they call it. Uh, uh, you know, type of fracture fracture technology uh, where they try to inject in every other fracture. For instance, you have, um, uh, f- for instance, um, you know, surfactants added to the injection gas uh, to to uh, you know decrease the mobility of, of the of the injection gas for for conformance issues. Uh, so th- things is moving in the right direction, and and uh, I'm, I'm I'm very sure that uh, we're going to get there uh, get there pretty soon. Um, I think I think um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see the next few years uh, whether or not uh, it, it's going to take up or not.
0: What are some of the big things we've learned that that may help people sort of uh, understand you know the, the nuances here, the context that you're giving? You know, are there are there. Uh, have we held on generally as observers to misconceptions about this practice? And that's why, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, why don't they scale up? Why don't they, why don't they move faster? These pilots. And then when you hear somebody from maybe EMP talk, uh, EP talk about it, um, you realize, whoa, this is a lot harder, um, than it seems on the face of it. I mean, these pilots are not straightforward.
1: Yeah. Uh, and that's true. And I think, you know, what they've underestimated so far is how much gas you actually need to, to inject into these pilots. Draw me a picture there. Just to take you an example, you know, some of the uh, pilots that they've been conducting in the in the, uh, in the Bakken, uh, you know, they were injecting a few million uh, scuffs per day. Um, while, while the successful cases that we've seen in the Eagle Ford, they're injecting you know, 15 million scuffs per day. That's an order of magnitude and increase. Um, and that's what you've seen that is required to get any type of economical uplift or any uplift at all, actually. Uh, so that's one, one part of the things that I think has been surprising for, for a lot of people. And I think the thing that has to um, probably increase in terms of, uh, of, uh, of uh, orders of magnitude when it comes to the operational side is how much gas you inject. Uh, I always draw the analogy to to uh, the early days when when we uh, started hydraulic fracturing that you you know you completed a well with uh, 10 stages and now we're talking if you count the number of clusters in a, in, a, in a lateral it might be 200 so you need to get the same order of magnitude increase also uh, in terms of how much uh, gas you inject uh, in these pilots so that, that's that's the uh, first thing the second thing is that you have to deal with this this conformance issue that uh, seems to be um, an issue everywhere. Also, are,
0: are those two related? The amount of gas and the conformance.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so you can say like you know, conformance is essentially, you know, uh, how much of your gas that you inject into the well bore is leaking out into other well bores surrounding the pilot, right? To this day, at least from all the people I speak to, from all the pilots I've been analyzing and, and so forth, every single pilot, if it, whether or not it's the Eagle Ford, it is the Bakken, or whatnot, you see the wells are communicating downhole. That's also related to this entire, you know, uh, well, well spacing issue and, and so forth. And, and, and the fact that they're com- communicating isn't necessarily negative, but but um, uh, you have to be able to repressurize the reservoir. And if all the gas is leaking out to other wells uh, that might be producing, you won't be able to, to pressurize that system. So I, th- I think there's two things that has been surprising for a lot of people. is actually how much gas you need to make it economical uh, and, and uh, the degree of how much they're struggling with these conformance issues. Um, the way I've seen they've solved that practically, uh, it's, it's very simple, uh, is that they, they um, essentially inject gas uh, at very, very high rates, maybe in, into one wellbore wh- where they have a pad with between eight to maybe 16 wells. Um, and and then and then they see uh, that all the offset wells are starting to pressurize up, and and w- once they pressure, uh, pressurize, um, they 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 starting to uh, to shut the, shut in the offset wells. And, and when the offset wells are sh- uh, shut in, uh, they, they keep on doing that until the the, uh, the uh, you don't see any uh, conformance issues or any type of communication downhole um, on the wells that are even further away from, from the injection.
0: Is this typically just on a pad or are we seeing, are you seeing um, cases where um, it's pad to pad? So we're talking about long distance conformance issues there.
1: Yeah, so you, you definitely see that as well and, and, and a little bit of the problem is that you Around an injection pad you, you don't necessarily you don't you don't own the neighbor pad sometimes, right? Right.
0: Uh, right. And and if
1: you if you um, you know I have to give a big shout out to to, to Hess actually that uh, if you look at the what they delivered and are gonna start now in two thousand and, um, and end of the year I think up in the Bakken, they're actually owning the, the pad and, and, and the lease or the DSU as they call it up there. Uh, and all the leases also around the injection pad. Um, and that's very good because even if you, if some of the gas is leaking out, you at least own the offset land so you can, you're able to monitor it. Um, you know, you, you actually get this, uh, uh, the gas back or there's actually someone else, uh, if that wasn't the case, someone else would actually make money of the gas you were, uh, you are uh, injecting. It's interesting because it, because it also suggests
0: it, it, it sort of, uh, to me, it, it says that you need to be somewhat of a, of a medium mid, you know, me, mid cap to a, a super independent here. To really play in this space much because of such of these kind of considerations, which is that if you're up in the Bakken or the Eagleford, you know, you have natural fractures, you have uh, induced frac hits that are long lasting, and you still don't have an x ray vision of the of the field. Um, so it, it sort of this practice seems to lend itself to the bigger players.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's not only the bigger players, you need a lot of continuous acreage. I think that's mm-hmm. key. Uh, the second thing is that you also, uh, it's very beneficial if you own the pipeline infrastructure on surface.
0: This was the big advantage for EOG, uh, yeah. which was, which I've been told, you know, during uh, when, when times got lean, they didn't sell their midstream infrastructure and that's why they're able to supply themselves with that much gas. So that's a huge bottleneck in itself.
1: Yeah. And not only on the commercial side, you know, you, 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 you know, you can utilize the gas better and, 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 and whatnot but it's also on the logistical side because if you have to depend on third party uh you know gas suppliers and renegotiate contracts and marketing contracts and these things every time you want to inject in a well uh, and, and sometimes you don't know how much gas you need to in- inject or for how long it will take until you build up that pressure. And, 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 and many, many times you have, you have some kind of target pressure, which is, is uh, uh, in general, as you want to go as high as you can when it comes to this, uh, this bottom hole pressure, uh, building up that pressure until, uh, uh, until typically some safety factor of the, uh, of the fracture initiation pressure.
0: Don't go over the frack gradient. You don't want to refract these wells. Yeah. You want to you know, maintain the the conductivity as it is.
1: Yeah, and, and sometimes it's actually regulated by the local government, so so you're not allowed to, uh, which is the case in, in for instance, uh, uh, Canada. But, but um, yeah, so that's, that's essentially that.
0: One piece of advice that's been given out uh, by practitioners here is if you're going to try to get through this pilot process, um, and deal with all these uncertainties um, that, that we've just covered, do it on an unbounded, you know, sort of the, 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 the first well on the pad, you know, the H1 well that doesn't have, um, you know, anything near it for half a mile or whatever. Uh, it, does, that, does that speak to you? I mean, would that, that way you would get that, uh, uh, that first contact, uh, you'd be able to sort of like run the economics a little bit better and run a pilot quicker. Does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah, d- definitely. And as I see, you know, some some of the companies that want to do the these pilots, they, they go for these big lease uh, DSUs where they inject a lot of gas and all the wells are communicating. Here we can talk like 25 wells could communicate when they start to inject. And, and at that end, that's bad news. Yeah, because the reason why it's bad is it's very hard to quantify. You know, then it's like, yeah, what wells are you actually going to include when you're going to uh, provide a, a baseline for forecast because you always have to compare it to uh, you know whatever these wells are going to produce anyway right mm-hmm. uh, but if you have an unbounded case uh, with, with also very good metering uh, you know top side it's much easier to first of all provide a, a bench uh, you know a benchmark for, for future uh, future production and y- you don't get this kind of a noise from all these offset wells. Uh, and in addition you will be uh, you know you should expect to have a much better pressure build up uh, which is also good for, for testing out the scheme in, in more controlled environments.
0: Is the data also cleaner for modeling from that point on as well, too?
1: Yeah, for sure. So for modeling as well, uh, you know, uh, um, many times these wells are allocated, so you don't actually have necessarily super good resolution on on your measured data for every single well. So there are some of these uncertainties that you kind of ignore if you do it on an unbounded well. Uh, and and uh, it's also cheaper because you you don't have to inject that much gas. since there's only one well that you need to um, inject into.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come right back to this topic and some other things. SPE is now accepting nominations for outstanding work in the E&P industry. Take a moment to help nominate your colleagues for the recognition they deserve. The international awards deadline is 15th of February and the regional awards deadline is the 1st of March. For more information, visit spe.org slash awards or click the link in the show notes. So Matias, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions about EOR before we move on. Uh, One of them that's come up in my reporting and I wanted to see if this squares with you is that, that when we talk about shale EOR, another roadblock here to sort of the scalability of this practice is that this, this is, isn't the core practice of the shale sector. Uh, this is a drilling complete world uh, that we live here in the, in the, in the lower 48. And um, this is being said a lot from the podium, into, including Tom Blazingame, the next president of the SBE in, in 2021, uh, who said, you know, the shale industry needs a lot more reservoir engineers. And when you look at shale EOR, this is very much a reservoir engineering specific domain. Does the industry, does the sector ha- have enough accrued experience and talent in that area to move faster? Uh, is, is that a, is that an issue, a
1: bottleneck? Yeah, that, that's definitely. I think what you what you said there, what Thomas said earlier, and and uh, you know, it's, it's also something I get from from kind of the community of reservoir engineers that's that's out there that this this requires uh, you know something else it requires you, you know modeling uh, research on the topic and so forth which m- m- you know m- might not have been the you know the name of the game uh, at least uh, initially in the in the shale space but also back to what we talked about earlier you need the players that can actually have the scale the infrastructure and the especially the gas volumes to carry this out. Uh, so, so, so uh, and if you look at the companies that actually has a lot of uh, reservoir engineers, they're typically the bigger players as well. Uh, and you, and you definitely have seen a change that leads, uh, at least from my perspective, where where uh, these companies are, are are recruiting more and more uh, people with uh, you know detailed and and uh, long lasting reservoir engineering experience.
0: Well, I presented sort of our, a review of our findings um, to an SBE group last year about this topic, and I got called out during the Q and A session because I didn't mention, you know, uh, you know, CO two flooding, and I didn't mention what you can do surfactants. So, to please, you know, sort of that crowd, let's let's move away from huff and puff just for a minute. And what what is happening on the surfactant front and the CO two front? We hear a lot less, um, and, and then even in Canada, people are talking about. Um, you know, just using uh, you know liquids uh, for for shale EOR. So, can how how are these things going?
1: Yeah, so I think that's a very good point. So, so for, for CO two is, is fairly simple uh, because no matter what you want to do, whether it's CO two liquids or surfactants, volume is key. You need the scale, and and um, you know when it comes to CO two. These contracts are like, I talk to people I, talking about CO2 and it's like, yeah, yeah, we can do all this stuff. We can do these experiments. We can do the simulation with CO2. But you know, if you go out and ask your marketing folks, you won't be able to get CO2 the next 10 years. Uh, so CO2 is kind of like uh, the privilege of, of a few players that has that and have had that historically, uh, namely being Oxy and and and, uh, and similar companies like that in the Permian. Um, surfactants is, is something, uh, again, that you, you you need a lot of scale. But, I've, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it, um, you know, or surfactants is actually, you know, I'm going to be honest now because surfactants is one of the things that you always hear about at these forums, and it's a lot of, like, papers about it. It's a lot of uh, sales pitches about it. but
0: There's tons of skepticism, let's be honest, for yeah, years. For, for ste- years.
1: And so, so I'm like, or at least what we usually say is like, okay, surfactants uh, it has never worked really commercially for for. Uh, Uh, you know, conventional reservoirs. the other
0: side is that people have a hard time proving that it worked, right? Yeah. I mean, so, so yeah. So, so you, you, you sound like you're on the fence here.
1: Yeah, a, a little bit, but I'm I'm yeah I'm not going to bash uh, too much on, on surfactants, but 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 uh, liquids in Canada is extremely uh, interesting, and and uh, then uh, again it's like water injection uh, mainly that I've that I've seen uh, there uh, there is some really really exciting technologies out there, uh, especially from uh, I think a, a service company called NCS has been uh, been um, completing some of these wells where the, you can actually isolate every other stage or fracture for a water injection and. Uh, and uh, water production, such that you get this more flood-based mechanism that uh, is, uh, it w- is what you typically uh, have, have been conducting in, in conventionals. And, and,
0: and you're talking about inflow control devices.
1: As a, yeah, essentially, yeah, inflow control devices. And, 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 and that's been uh, extremely exciting to see some of the results there uh, early, been presented at, at different forums and whatnot. Looks very promising. Um, uh, and again... Uh, but it's water, and again, you need scale. And if you think about how much water you, you use to uh, frack these wells, which is like you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of barrels to fracture one well, uh, you know you need the same type of volume and scale if you should be able to do some kind of EOR. Yeah. Uh, so if if uh, so, so just to sum up, I think you know key no matter what you want to do EOR, scale is important, and then you need to look at what's the most costly. Uh, uh, or cost efficient. So what do you have the most avi- available close to your pad where you that you can put down to any well more and, ty- and typically that's natural gas associated gas and, and
0: water. So the horizon for these things is pretty long. I mean, you know, you were talking about, you know, you'll be excited to see what happens in, in huff and puff in the next five years. Some of these might have a longer horizon for scale. Um, but the last question on this, and this is I've asked this and other people have asked me this. Will the shale sector ever get to a point where it's designing the initial completion, the initial drilling, you know, design on or, or to prepare for EOR? Or as I said earlier, will it always remain a DNC world? EOR will have to learn how to live in it.
1: Um, it's it's going to be a combination, but I've already seen actually a couple of companies that that is starting to de- design pads with EOR in mind. Um, that means you know bigger well to well spacing uh, it's also to to make sure that the high pressure gas pipelines are, are going uh, you know are built close to to the pads themselves because you don't want to have you know pipelines uh, with uh, 10,000 psi pressure going across uh, you know land where people live and where cows are are, are being fed and whatnot um, so, so um, yeah, so I, I definitely see that's that's actually an increasing trend that I've seen very, very early in the beginning, and that uh, I'll expect to see much more of in the future. But, but that said, you know, you have a hundred thousand wells or whatever we have out there drilled horizontally um, that is not built with the gas you are in mind. What, what should you do about those? You can't just leave them uh, leave them be because they actually have a lot of more more oil uh, oil left in them, and now it's the challenge of trying to make that uh, re- or recover that economically.
0: Okay, we're going to take one more break and then come back and explain what oil separator shrinkage is. I know everybody wants to know, and you're going to find out. SPE members get up to a 50% discount in the SPE bookstore. Visit store.spe.org to look for your next reading material. And watch out for SPE's new book, Hydraulic Fracturing Fundamentals and Advancement. Authors will be on site at the Hydraulic Fracturing Conference in the Woodlands for book signings. All right, so we're back, Matthias. This is uh, the last thing I wanted to get you to speak with us about. And, uh, and I found it pretty interesting. It is it is sort of wonky. It, it does take you into the weeds a little bit. But if, if uh, we were at the, the dinner table and I'm your, your great aunt, Lucy, how would you explain what oil
1: separator shrinkage is? Yeah, so the simplest way of, of explaining oil separator shrinkage is, is essentially that all these oil and gas wells that we're producing from where they are actually measured, so where they have a measuring tool, just as the same as you would measure, you know, how much water is in your uh, kitchen equipment uh, at home, that me- uh, measurement is done at what's called separated conditions typically at wellhead. Uh, and the pressure and temperature of, uh, at those, uh, those uh, separators are higher than, and, than where you sell the, the oil and gas products. Um, so from the separated conditions down to what's called stock tank conditions, your oil will, will shrink and some of the gas will come out of solution, uh, which will have a big impact on economics, right? Because you, you would like that shrinkage to be as, as low as possible so, such that you can um, sell more oil because oil is worth more than gas in, in all of these places.
0: Okay. So you, you did a study on this. This is, this was the paper I saw you present in IPTC last week, um, in uh, Duran, Saudi Arabia. And, um, you know, one of the, uh, I guess at, at a high level, the, the, the big number that you threw out in the paper is that as a consequence of this, this phenomena, this issue, um, a, an oil company, an operator could overestimate the amount of oil they're producing on a lease or on a well by up to 20%. And so that's, that's actually a huge, a huge, uh, you know, percentage there.
1: Yeah, and, 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 and the funny thing there is that it's it's not only like the uncertainty in your forecast, but it's, this is actually data that you have measured uh, and that you just you haven't accounted for separator oil shrinkage. So what, what we see a lot is essentially, and, and, and that paper was just built on a lot of practical kind of pragmatic observations that we made, where, where the first one was for all these companies we work with in North America, which is like 25 plus companies, we, we've, we've seen that almost everywhere people ignore separator shrinkage. When they when they actually do uh, history matching and and call it well performance analysis, uh, that means that you know potentially I've seen shrinkage factors being fifty percent. That means that if you if you uh, if you think that your well is producing a thousand barrels per day, you're actually just producing five hundred.
0: And that's because and that's and that's largely because of, you know shale oil. Um, If you will, the, you know, the, the, we we talk about the volatile black oil window all the time. It really is volatile. I mean, it's, it's, you take it out of the ground and, and it's degassing, you know, things are coming out of solution. So that's adding pressure and that's increasing the, the, the volume that you think is in there uh, through the flow meter.
1: So, yeah, yeah. so there's, there's two things there that's important, and, and you, you're on to it. The first is the fluid type is very important. Uh, so, sh- like, shrinkage and changes in shrinkage over time is expected to be larger for, for uh, fluids that has more gas in solution. So mm-hmm. that's volatile oils, that's near-critical fluids, gas condensates, and lean gas condensates. Um, um, yeah, and the second thing is actually the, the, the actual temperature and pressure of these uh, separators, and they can change a lot over the lifetime of a of a well. Um, and and if they, if especially if the pressure is high and the temperature is low, you can get very very high uh, high uh, um, shrinkages. And 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 what I'm uh, uh, the other thing is also that uh, as I said, they can change a lot through time. And and typically what you see is that uh, the temperature changes with the seasons. So when it's hot in Texas during the summer. Uh, the temperature is higher than, than, than during the winter uh, and maybe even bigger changes you can see in, in uh, up north in, in, in Bakken and, and parts of uh, parts of Canada. Right, you, you
0: put up a chart actually during the presentation showing the seasonal differences and it was it was clear as day you could see in, on the in the summer it's, it's you know it's up and then in the winter it goes down.
1: Yeah and that's something you see mostly for all these wells while, while the pressure typically is high, uh, in the beginning, and then it decreases together with the bottom hole pressure. And again, what's unique by these uh, these uh, shale reservoirs is that you, 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 your bottom hole pressures, the pressure that actually uh, gives the well potential to flow, decreases much, much faster than what you see in conventional reservoirs. Uh, you know, in conventional reservoirs, you can have a constant pressure boundary, so you, you know, it can produce at constant pressure forever. Well, while here, your, your bottom of pressure drops like a rock on day one, and you produce almost all, all the potential of your well the first two years. And, and then for a long period of time, this pr- pressure is constant, and, and the separator pressure is kind of uh, not mimicking that, but you see the same trend in the separator pressure. Uh, so so the, the other thing about that is that your separator shrinkage factor can actually uh, change significantly over time. While, while people, if they apply shrinkage factors at all, they typically apply it to be a, sh- a constant factor for all the wells uh, throughout the field.
0: Right. So they're taking one data point that was, you know, derived years ago, probably uh, based on, you know, a, a, f- a few initial wells in the field. But we've seen uh, – I remember we were, we were at a presentation, the one we were talking about in Florida, where uh, – I, f- I forget who it was, but it was a great picture. And he showed um, uh, jugs of, of oil samples in the Eagleford on the back of a F F-150. Yeah. And they were all taken within about uh, a few miles of each other, and they were radically different. I mean, you, you don't need to be an expert at all to see that the API gravities were, were totally different across these wells, and they spatially – uh, uh, they weren't that far apart, and so a company would be uh, more inclined under the traditional sort of system here to just apply one uh, shrinkage factor to all of those, even though clearly the, these oil wells have different compositions.
1: Typically, the shrinkage factor is just uh, a measurement that you, you you know you 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 take a fluid, uh, a separate oil, you you give it to some kind of laboratory, and they do a very simple flash experiment uh, to talk tank conditions, and you get this shrinkage factor, and that shrinkage factor is something they apply constant for entire field of region, which is extremely dangerous considering that uh, all of these wells are typically different. That's what's unique while with these shale basins. You have everything from dry gas to, to critical fluids and black oils, uh, where, where the shrinkage issue is, is probably the biggest in the critical to gas condensate uh, region. Uh, and, and the second thing is that, you know, things like API, API and GORs and all these things, so the producing API and the producing uh, GORs are changing throughout time. Is sort of uh, the hot
0: topic a couple of years ago uh was was the gor rising in the in the Permian it's not going away but
1: um, it sort of caught people by surprise if you like even if you meter these rates and you've done all your, your work perfectly if you don't account for those changes you know even on the you know it's kind of crazy to me you know even 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 data points where you have measurements you're still off by up to 20 percent sometimes even 50 if you don't account for it and 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 uh, you know th- that's in a world where you at least think that you have done everything correctly, um, and kind of the bad the bad news about it is that typically if you ignore it, you you will just de- uh, disappoint your manager <laughs> in in, in the, you know, throughout these organizations. So maybe that's why people are not uh, talking too much about but, it. But
0: but just to hit it home, the you know so we we talked about that high level number. You could be overestimating oil production by twenty percent. But this, this, you know, At some point, the, uh, these these missing barrels get accounted for, right? And so that's usually at the sales end. So, so uh, th- this issue comes home to roost once somebody discovers it, but it, it, there's, an, there's information siloing happening, and then there's sort of a, a broad application of, of this, this shrinkage factor that needs to be customized and then optimized over time, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so what happens to these missing barrels when, they, when somebody realizes that, you know, maybe this lease wasn't producing that?
1: So, you know, typically where this is an issue is, 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 is um, you know, with the people doing forecasting. Because if they don't account for it while they're doing forecasting or the his history match, um, for instance, a well using the separator uh, barrels, then they'll, uh, they'll think that their well is much more productive than what it really is. Well, you know, uh, again, back to the siloing is that uh, you know maybe operationally and practically it's not an issue because uh, the marketing guys they they get uh, you know a million a million dollars for what they sell and they have to allocate it back to the wells and then they just use some uh, some simple uh, simple factors. But but the main issue is if a reservoir engineer has has thought that that this this uh, region is much more uh, prolific than it really is and, and, and give, gives away all these forecasts to develop this acreage. And then you realize that you, you, you might be uh, you know, 20% or, or more off.
0: You framed up the problem pretty well here. Um, and it is, I mean, I think for anybody listening, it, it, does, get, it does take you down into the weeds. Um, it shows you how, how uh, complicated these wells are, you know, that, that, uh, um, that you have to take into account how your separator works. Uh, you have to take into account how it works on Monday, on Friday, in January, and in August. And, and and so, you know, to some to tie all this up, you you, you at Whitson and, and the researchers and your and your uh, cadre of, of clients of, of shale producers, you guys have figured out a model that, that helps me. Do I have to go and, and, and tweak my reservoir and, and check the meter every single day? What's the solution?
1: Oh, yeah. So yeah, so the solution to this is actually very simple and, and uh, you don't need any other data than, than what you already have. Um, you know the data you just pull up the separated temperature and pressure from your SCADA system uh, which uh, at least all the clients that we work for uh, have that uh, so that's red. there's a few a that don't have SCADA but you know oh, okay but most, most yeah. do these things yeah most of them um, and, and uh, so, so you, you pull that data off the, the separated meters um, and and uh, then, you, then you have a more sophisticated model called a uh, so-called equation of state model that, that describes the, all the fluids throughout an entire basin. And you use those two data points together with the production data to uh, essentially calculate shrinkage factors on a daily basis. Uh, so that's something that's been successfully done uh, you know, many, many places you know, in all the places. Um, but it's just the uh, I think the biggest issue is the awareness and, and even that when I did the presentation last week you know there was those people uh, coming back up to me after the presentation also when they uh, asked the questions that you know these these are good reminders for us because we you know these things is, is typical things we we don't think about but uh, can lead to, uh, biases and, and actually huge uh, differences. And, and just actually trying to loop this back to what we talked about uh, earlier with the gas um, EOR topic is, is uh, you know, when, you, when you do, for instance, gas huff and puff and you, uh, you inject for a period of time and then you produce back, then essentially what's happening in that 30-day uh, period when you produce is that your bottom pressure is in, uh, decreasing very rapidly again when uh, you've injected gas, so uh, essentially the fluid composition that you're producing back is also changing rapidly. So you essentially get this, this entire lifetime or the, the changes that you think would happen in the lifetime of a well happens in, in 30 days. Mm-hmm. So it, like these issues with shrinkage, these issues with you know compositional changes and stuff like that, uh, you know it's put up a couple of orders of magnitude. Uh, when you do gas war. so if it is one place it's really it's important to take it into account Is is when you do this gas UR project just
0: to wrap up here because you know you you've given us a lot of uh a lot to think about how how did this problem or this issue uh come into your view was this was this uh Uh, You being pulled by your operator clients or have you guys just, you know, been wanting to look at this Uh, because I'm trying to and I'm asking that just to get a gauge of how serious uh, your clients have taken this this issue
1: so so uh, it's kind of a little bit um, we' kind of split it into two groups you have the clients that come to us with this as an issue because they don't have measurements at uh, stock tank uh, conditions and stock tank conditions is you know where you kind of um, you know put the value to you know to the VTI and, and the Brent and all these uh, these crudes and, and also for for, for uh, similarly for 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 gas. Uh, so you have the guys that come to us and asked about uh, you know what can we do to actually calculate this this daily? And then you have uh, some that you know we see that they're not accounting for it, so we just have to remind them about uh, about, about doing it. So it's it's kind of like a combination uh, of uh, of both things and and uh, for for uh, you know in kind of in defense for a lot of these shale companies is that you you have to acknowledge that they're very, very lean on resources. Uh, they're like they're managing, like I have friends that manage two thousand wells. And then you can come to, uh, and you can kind of criticize them because they are not doing this and they're not doing that, but they're doing a great job. But if you, and then you go to some of my friends that working offshore in Norway, you know, where they have uh, 20 people analyzing one well. And, you know, it's it's like, it's not fair to do that uh, uh, comparison. And uh, obviously there it's much easier to account for, uh, you know, account uh, account for separator shrinkage and all these things that, that uh, might be of secondary priority to, to some of the the guys over here.
0: Yeah, that's great t- context. Um, you know, the, these, these problems are here because shale is so new yeah. and that's also what makes it so exciting is that as, as we sort of peel the onion layers back uh, we learn more and more. And so, you know, separators, if you ever seen these things going down the highway uh, they're big and boring and they're expensive and, and they're, and they're kind of, Non-exact, but they come from the conventional world where they worked just fine, and, and then you apply them to something as delicate as a as a, the the, the two-year production life of a of a new shale well, and the, the game gets more complicated, and you peel back another layer, uh, and, and then it, with respect to the engineers that have to deal with all these uh, uh, you know two thousand wells, this this massive scale you know, I, I, my day's ruined, you know, if I try to write 10 emails, you know, I, I can't, you know, so, uh, you know, you, if you text me, I might get back to you tomorrow kind of thing. And I just, so yeah, a lot, a lot of respect for the work that's going on there. But, uh, at the same time, it's always good to talk about these challenges and spread the awareness because these are problems that can be solved. People like you are trying to do that. Uh, so, you know, well, with that, we're going to, uh, let you go. Matthias, but we're going to put the links to all your papers that we talked about here on the uh, show notes so that people can go learn more.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, we want to keep the conversation going. So please use the hashtag SPE podcast wherever you find us on your social media. Uh, reach out, send in your comments and leave us some reviews on your podcast platform. We want to hear from you. And of course, we want you to read JPT online and in print, so make sure to bookmark us and keep checking in for new content. I'm Trent. See you next time. SPE Podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, whose vision is to advance the oil and gas community's ability to meet the world's energy demands in a safe, environmentally responsible, and sustainable manner. Learn more at SPE.org.